Let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you for your willingness to show us such love, to send your son to die for us so that we could be made your children. And all those words that we've just finished singing about, all of the things that your son went through, those same things that we're going to read about this morning, these same, these same memories that we're going to bring back up from maybe, maybe an Easter sermon that we've heard in the past or a Good Friday sermon, but God, I think, I think that this is, this is a thing that we need to be talking about all the time, how important the cross was for us, because without the cross, we would not be here. So God, I just pray that um, we would just revel this morning at your love for us and your mercy to, to make a way so that we could, we could be your children, we could be your sons and daughters. God, I just pray that as we, as we study these words, as we read through the scripture this morning, that um, you just open our eyes in a new way to better understand your love for us and what it is that you went through um, on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Are we going to, I mean, I can preach to mood. Music. Sound booth's just going to take a break. That's cool. I can preach to the mood music, but we don't have to leave it on. That's cool. I mean, the music was playing long before. We're not going to argue about this right now. We're not going to argue about this. So, full confession. Um, somebody else preached last week, and I haven't heard what he preached yet. Is because I was at the beach, and I haven't. I don't even know what passage he was in. But I have heard that it was fantastic and something that everybody should listen to. So I fully intend to go back and listen to that. I just was at the beach last week and didn't get around to it yet. So that being said, um, you can pray for me because most of these thoughts were put together while at the beach. So if I just kind of chill out and start getting hungry for like a sandwich in about 10 minutes, it might happen. Anyway, so you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 27. Let me kind of reset the stage for where we were a couple of weeks ago. Um, we're coming to the end of this. We've actually only, I think, got three more like sermons going through the Matthew narrative. We're almost there. We've, if you've been here since we started, it's been like over a year and a half. And we're almost there. We're coming up to the finish line. And, and as we get there, we're getting to, obviously... I just prayed about it. This is, this is the most important part of what Jesus did. Like all of the other parts kind of led up to what we are studying today. Everything in scripture up to this point has pointed up to these last couple of weeks. And specifically the things that we're going to talk about today with his crucifixion. So a couple of weeks ago, Jesus had just finished being tried by both, by both the religious leaders of the area and they'd found him guilty of blasphemy. And then they, they sent him over to the Roman government because the Roman government was the only ones that actually had the authority to execute somebody who had been convicted of blasphemy. So they sent him off and he stood before Pilate. And Pilate's like, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. But the people were beginning to riot and out of fear, uh, Pilate sentenced Jesus to death. And it says he sent him away 
to be crucified. So we're going to pick up here in Matthew 27. We're going to kind of break through, go through some of these things. A couple of things that I think are interesting. There are, there are four different tellings of this in the four different Gospels. And each one kind of focused differently on what happened during Jesus' crucifixion and death. Luke is very detailed in the way that he goes about it. Being a doctor himself, Luke goes through and gives us all of these really scientific details so that we can understand the physical pain and the things that he was going through and the ways that we can know that he was actually dead on the cross so that there can't be some story where he didn't just die, he fainted. So he didn't really come back. to like Luke does a lot of debunking, um, speaking within like the physical terms and the things that Jesus was going through. And those, and those things are helpful but Matthew's, Matthew's telling of the crucifixion is kind of stripped back. And if you read through it, and I was, you know, I've read through, you know, the end of the book a couple of times, just as I've been kind of preparing sermons along the way. And each time I get there, it's like, wow, that's really fast. It's like half a chapter, and then we're done, and then we're moving on. Um, there's not all of those detailed conversations and things that he has with, you know, people that are standing there, you know, watching him on the cross and we don't see we don't get all the dialogue between Jesus and the two thieves that are on either side of him we don't we don't get all of those details and I think that is because Matthew's trying to push through a different point in his telling of the crucifixion he's trying to show that that Jesus death he's trying to show what all it is accomplishing what all it is fulfilling you know we remember back to a long time ago, back in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, where Jesus is talking about he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. Well, this is his ultimate fulfillment of the law. The cross is him saying, I have taken care of all of those things that you've been working on for you know, hundreds, thousand years, however long it's been that you've been offering all of these sacrifices and going through all of the system. This is it. It's done. We're finished. No more. Right. This is Jesus' kind of final planting his flag of victory and saying, see, I've done everything. And Matthew kind of strips back all the details, takes all that away so that we can kind of see what it is that Jesus is doing. And there's one other thing that I think he wants us to get. And I'll go ahead and give you this so that as we're reading it, you can kind of see it, hopefully the way that I saw it this week while I was studying it. The other thing is that Jesus is still absolutely God and is still absolutely sovereign through this whole ordeal. At no point is Jesus weak and incapable of taking care of himself should he want to. And I think that is so key, and you'll see why when we get a little further in. So if you're in Matthew chapter 27, we're going to pick up here in verse 27, um, and it says this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him and stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes and led him away to crucify him. I completely butchered the reading of that last verse, but you get the gist. So a couple of things that are happening to Jesus here. Right at the end of the last section that we had read, um, Pilate had released them to Barnabas, released them Barabbas, and then it says, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So, and I said a couple weeks ago that we were going to wait until this week to kind of talk about 
what is all going on here. And I want to get into some of the detail that Luke gives us and some of the specificity about what crucifixion was and what all of these things are, because we have to understand what the point of these things are and why it is that this is so impactful to specifically Matthew's Jewish audience that he's saying they're crucifying him, because he just uses the word crucify. Most of us, I would venture to guess, none of us have never, have ever, so many negatives. Most of us have not seen a crucifixion in real life. I hope not at least. Because here's the thing we need to realize. Crucifixion was not just the most painful death you could experience, but it was the most humiliating and in most cases the longest form of execution that Rome had. We think, we think of Jesus being on the cross for, you know, six hours, something like that, before he died. But he died quickly because he was flogged first. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. What they would do is they would go literally tie his hands to a post and they'd take this whip that had like pieces of bone and metal and they would, and they would hit him on the back. You know, w w you've heard 40 lashes minus one. That wasn't a rule that the Romans went by. They just hit you as many times as they wanted to. And this thing would like, catch into your skin and it'd pull back not just skin, but it'd pull back skin and meat and everything. Like it would expose bones and internal organs. And the whole point of it was to, most of the time, kill the person that you were beating. Most people would die just from the flogging, much less the crucifixion. So why did he have Jesus flogged if he's just going to go crucify him afterwards? Well, because he didn't want this to be as drug out for Jesus. He wanted Jesus to be in as weak a state as he could when he took him to the cross because he didn't want to have Jesus still hanging on the cross on the day of the Passover, on the Sabbath, you know, these sorts of things. Because here's the thing. Crucifixion at some times could take days. Most deaths from crucifixion were not from blood loss, were not from being strung out on a cross and having your hands nailed to a piece of wood. Most of the time you died from exposure because you were sitting out in the elements for days with all manner of people walking by, making fun of you, kicking things at you, sitting in the sun, baking, you know, birds and bugs coming and picking away at your body because you are incapable of protecting yourself. It was humiliating. You would literally be laying there, be, be standing there tied up, most of the time completely naked, completely exposed, absolutely humiliated. You're, you're, it wasn't just that they killed you. They killed you and they took your dignity away while they were doing it. That was the point of crucifixion. It was to humiliate the person who was being executed. It was to make them feel as though they had no control, they had no dignity, there was nothing left of them, they lost their whole identity. I want us to get this picture because this is what, when they say, crucify him, when last week, or when two weeks ago, the people say, we want him to be crucified and let his blood be on us and on our children. That doesn't necessarily ring, that doesn't really resonate with us because we don't really understand that concept. We don't get what flogging and crucifixion are. But I want us to understand how painful and awful this thing was that Jesus was going through. The thing that he was going to be put through was so agonizing and so humiliating. And, 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 and it, was so, it was so awful that, that this was as much Rome's means of being a crime deterrent. Because if you knew that this was a thing that Rome did, you'd probably get in line. Like they would literally line the roads leading into cities with people being crucified on either side so that as you walk into town, there are just people hanging there, slowly dying in pain. 
in agony, completely humiliated as you walked into town so that you would realize these people are serious. I don't want to mess with them. Absolutely trying to rule through fear. And so Jesus is brought into this company of soldiers, and it just says a large group of soldiers. I mean, this could have been anywhere from like 100 to maybe 400 soldiers who are all sitting around watching him being beaten, watching him being humiliated, who are all mocking him together. And I think it's interesting. We talked about this two weeks ago, how the charges that were brought against Jesus when he went from being tried by the religious leaders to being tried by the Romans went from being he's, he's a blasphemer to being he's an insurrectionist. Right? The charges changed based on the, the group that they were trying to get him convicted by. The mockery that he's taking also shifts. Because remember when he was before all the priests, they were covering his head and hitting him and saying, Quick, prophesy, who's that hitting you? Right? They're mocking, they're mocking his, his power. They're mocking his, his spiritual authority. They're mocking his, his godliness. But now that he's, he's been tried and found guilty of being an insurrectionist, he's trying to take over the kingdom and rule the people, these soldiers are mocking him, saying, let's praise him like he's a king. Let's worship him like he's, he's some supreme ruler who's going to overthrow us. And I think it's interesting to see that, that shift in what it is the focus of the different audiences see in Jesus there again. And the irony of all of this is that when he was being asked to prophesy who hit you, he could and when he's being worshipped as the king of the Jews, he was. All of these things were right, but because they're, like, like they're saying good things, they're saying right things, they just don't know it. Because they so don't have their hearts in it. They so don't understand who he is, what it is that he's doing. And at no point is he defending himself. Is he saying, yes, this is it, this is right. Because, because he knew what was next. He knew why he was there. Let's go ahead and continue on in verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then the two robbers were crucified, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. We'll stop here, because I think there are a couple of different things that I want us I want us to focus on that are taking place here. And again, we get less detail about some things in Matthew's account, and I think that that's okay. Like, I could, we could get into 
the conversation that Jesus had with the thieves on the cross. But the fact that they're there, I think we need to ask, why is Matthew making sure that we know that he's even there? A, because Matthew has been trying to tell us all along, he's the fulfillment of all these prophecies. And this is an answer to prophecy that would be hung between two thieves. But also, it helps to know who these guys are. These guys a lot like Barabbas who got released two weeks ago when we were reading through that, who got released because the people liked him because he was an insurrectionist. He was wanting to fight back against Rome. That's who these guys were. These guys were the kinds of guys that it honestly should have probably been Barabbas who's sitting there with them because they're all in this same kind of mindset together. And so they've got him between two people who are, who are convicted of similar things to the things that he's being convicted of so that it's as though he's saying, these are the people that he is with. This is who this guy is. They're trying to make a point. Look, he's, his, his, over his head, we're going to write, Hail, King of the Jews. This is him. Like they're trying to take away every last bit of, of who he is and try to make, make a mockery of all of these charges that are being brought against Jesus. They're putting him between two people that he's obviously not, he's obviously not like. He's not here to overthrow a government, but these are the kinds of people that he's being thrown in with. It's kind of one last attempt to take away all of his dignity. It's kind of one last attempt to kind of remove his identity and kind of weaken him and, and, and all of this. Speaking of being weak, uh, we're given the detail about the guy named Simon um, who, who's asked to carry his cross. What he's probably having to carry, they wouldn't have to carry, you know, we've seen in your mind, you probably see him carrying the whole cross, you know, the two pieces of wood that are already nailed together. But probably what Jesus was having to carry was just the crossbar. The, the, the straight up and down bar was usually already there in place, and they would just carry the cross piece with them, and then they would attach that after they'd gotten them nailed onto it. Um, but either way, this is a heavy thing. We're talking hundreds of pounds, probably, that they're trying to lay on his shoulders. After he's bitten, beaten, within an inch of his life, all of his skin's torn away. He's walking around basically naked, no shoes, no nothing, as he's walking along rocky, dusty gravel roads. And he's weak. He's so weak, he can't even carry the whole cross. And, and they have to throw it on this other guy who, who through some church tradition we're told, later on realizes what it was that he was asked to do and actually comes back and believes in who Jesus is and what it was that he was doing. So we got to understand just how weak he was when he's being brought up to this point and he's being, and he's being put on this cross. And now they're, they're, they're putting him between, between two evil people and they're putting a mockery of a charge over his head all in an attempt to kind of tear away at who he is. And then to kind of lay it on a little bit thicker, you know, we talked about how they would, they would do these crucifixions along the road as a crime deterrent. So people are probably, you've got to realize, this was like the busiest week of the year in Jerusalem, like everybody from all Israel had been in Jerusalem for, for the week of the Passover. And so you have probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of people just walking along the road. And as they see him, they're yelling at him. They're hurling insults at him. We talked about how these crowds who had been following him all along have now revealed where their heart state actually was. That they did not actually love him. They were not actually following him because they desired to be more like him and believe in him. But they were following him just for the show. And now the show is him being crucified and they're mocking him and they're hurling insults at him. And then, and then his, 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 his enemies 
in a sense. The, high pri- the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees are all coming around. And, and look at the things that, look at the insults that they are hurling at him. You know, he could heal these people, but he can't save himself. You know, if you're God, come on down. Like they're, they're, they're tempting him with the exact same things that he was tempted with by Satan as he began his ministry, right? Save yourself. Do your own thing. Get yourself out of this. Keep yourself from having to go through all this pain, all this agony, all this defeat. And you can just have all this. You can have us. We'll believe in you. Just let yourself down. That same temptation is being thrown at him again. You could get out of this. And that's absolutely true. He absolutely could have gotten out of that at any point. When Satan told him back when he was being tempted, if you throw yourself from the temple, God will send his angels to catch you. That's absolutely true. He could have done that, and a host of angels could have saved him. But that's not why he was there, and he maintained his focus, and he understood what it was that he was trying to accomplish. He knew what was at stake. And so, and so to these guys who are coming up, and they're yelling all of these things at him, You who destroy the temple in three days and rebuild it, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. The thing we have to understand, and this is what we keep coming back to in Matthew, is that the idea of a suffering Savior, a suffering and dying Messiah, was so foreign to these guys. They cannot grasp, they cannot grasp the idea that the Messiah was supposed to come and humbly die and be weak. They cannot grasp this. That's the ironic thing to them. They're saying, save yourself, be strong, and we'll believe in you. But scripture had pointed to the idea that whoever it is that was, would come and be the Messiah would not be coming to be a king at that point. He's coming to suffer, to be humble, to be weak, to take all of this on, on our behalf. And they never were able to understand this. The most, the most illogical thing to all of the religious leaders of the day was the most necessary thing for their salvation. And I think that is just the perfect form of irony. Like, the one thing you need is the one thing you will not believe you could need. Like, they just couldn't get their brains wrapped around it. But yet, yet this thing needed to happen. There's, there's a song that we haven't sung it in a long time because it's really hard to play. Um, called Felix Culpa. Um, but, the, I, but Felix Culpa is part of a, a longer Latin phrase, which basically translates to happy fault. Um, it's, it's kind of the answer to the, I don't want to get too deep into this, but the problem of evil. The idea that if God's in charge, why are bad things happening? Why do bad things happen? Well, because for whatever reason, God sees that he gets the most glory. The best is going to happen because of the presence of this evil. This thing needs to happen for God to receive glory. The, the best thing for us is for this bad thing to happen. And, and I think the, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees and these guys um, couldn't understand the idea that God would use something bad, humiliating, weak, as a means of accomplishing something greater. In their mind, oh, we've done this good thing. We're going to be rewarded. We're going to be given authority. We're going to be given power. We're going to be given this, this physical kingdom here on earth. We're going to get all of these things. 
But what we understand the more we look into Scripture is that God uses weakness, God uses sin, God uses brokenness for His glory and for good. And so, and so when we say things like, when we're singing songs like Felix Culp, it's talking about, look at all of this sin that's present in my life, look at how bad I am, but look, because I am so bad, look at how good that makes Jesus look. And look at how much I can appreciate what it is that he's doing for me so that he can make me like him. And that's what the religious people of the day and the people walking by and yelling at Jesus couldn't wrap their brains around. That this awful, disgusting, humiliating thing had to happen because that was the way that God was going to save the world. That was the way that God was going to bring about salvation. It took that evil thing to bring about perfect salvation. So in a sense, it is a happy fault. It is a good thing that this evil took place. That sounds bad, but it's, it's exactly what was needed so that we could be reconciled to God. And that's what I think gets us to the biggest part, the biggest, most important point that Matthew is trying to make in his telling. Go ahead and look in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again, and with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs, were all, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. We'll go ahead and stop right there. couple of things. We see this darkness. It talks about this darkness. It's not an eclipse, and actually we know that it's not an eclipse, like physically. We know it's not an eclipse because we know when the Passover falls, during what time of the month, and so there had already been a full moon. It's, it's super techy, but I was reading that. I was like, that's kind of a cool thought. We can know it's not an eclipse because we know where the feast would have fallen. So there couldn't have been a full moon, so there couldn't have been an eclipse of the sun. So, so this darkness that's falling on the earth during this time is absolutely being brought on by God. And, and there's lots of things that we could get into about how it's happening. I don't think that really is helpful. But, but what I think it's trying to show is the contrast. When, whenever we see light and dark being contrasted in Scripture, it's talking about you know, sin versus salvation or, or, or holiness of God versus the wickedness of man. And I think what we're seeing here is this, is, this is the moment, this is the point where Jesus is having all of the weight of all of the sin, of all of creation laid on him. This is where he is taking on that. He is becoming the sacrificial lamb that we have needed 
the perfect sacrifice that we have all been needing all along up to this point in Scripture and that we will continue to need throughout the rest of time. Right? This is where this is taking on. And Jesus is feeling the weight of that sin and he's crying out to God because God, having laid all of this sin on him, is treating him now as a sinner, bearing the weight of sin. And he's, in a sense, separating himself from that sin because God is holy and he cannot touch sin. And, and Jesus is feeling this sense of abandonment because he's, he's being separated from his Father for the first time that he's ever felt this way. And he's calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a couple of things that I want us to notice in here. He's not mad at God. He's not rejecting God because God is looking away from him. He's still calling him my God, my God. Like he's not saying, you've turned your back on me, I'm done. He's saying, you're not looking at me right now and this is awful, but you're still God. You're still my father. One other thing I want us to recognize is that at no point, even though God has kind of turned his back on him, did they, did they stop being connected by virtue of, like, Jesus didn't stop being God. He didn't give up his deity, right? When he came to earth, he became human. He added that. He was limited. He allowed himself to be limited somewhat, but he didn't give up his being God at all while he was here. And I think Matthew gives us the clearest, the clearest description of what happens when he dies that all of the Gospels do. And I think that this is so key because it reminds us that he is God and it reminds us that he is in control of everything because when it says when he dies, I'm just going to pull it back up here. It says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. It doesn't say, and then he died and then he succumbed to his wounds and he died. It says he yielded up his spirit. When I hear that word yielded, that is an action word. That is a word being performed by the person who is doing the yielding, if you will. Right? So what it's saying is he is still God. Up until the point that he died, he was still able to save himself. He could have stopped it the whole time. He could have given it up. He could have said it's not worth it. I'm done. But what does he do? He yields up his spirit. He says, I got it, let's go. This is it. In other, in other versions, it says, he says, it's finished, it's accomplished, I've done it all, and then he dies. But, but look at this, he is actively dying. He is dying willingly. Right? He is even sovereign over his moment of death because he is still God. And he is doing this because he wants to, not because they want to. He's dying because he desired to die because he desired to bring us salvation. There's so many other little details that we could get into. But let's just focus on this. So as soon as he died, and again, remember, what has Matthew's point been through this whole telling of the whole gospel? That Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament had been pointing to for so long, right? So he makes the point, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Let's start with that. The curtain that it's talking about is the curtain that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God was, the place where only the high priest could go 
once a year to offer a sacrifice for the whole nation of Israel. If you go in there and you're not supposed to, you don't come back out, right? Even the high priest, if he went in and he did something wrong while he was in there, they had to tie a rope to his legs so they could drag him out because if he was found to be in sin or if he did something incorrectly during that process, God would kill him right there on the spot and they'd have to drag him out. This was serious stuff. You don't just walk into the presence of God. You needed a mediator. You needed a priest. Jesus, as he died, he became that perfect mediator. He became our priest. He now mediates for us. And we can be in the presence of God because of what Jesus has accomplished. It makes a point of saying the curtain was torn from top to bottom. This isn't just like a little cheap piece of fabric that you go buy at like a fabric store where you can just kind of, if you work at it, you can eventually get a good rip going, right? It's not, like, it's not like something would be easy to tear this. We're talking this is a thick, heavy thing. And so the point that it's trying to make is the only way that this thing could be torn, especially from top to bottom, is if it was God tearing it and saying, this is my son and whom I am well pleased like he did at the time of Jesus' baptism. And he tears that and he says, because he's accomplished it, we don't need this anymore. We don't need this system. He's taken care of it. You don't need the temple. Temple's done. From that moment, Jesus' death accomplished everything that the whole Old Testament had been working toward. Complete. Finished. The ground shook. It even talks about about people who had been dead coming back to life, walking out of their tombs and walking around and talking to people. Because we're seeing that Jesus' crucifixion was powerful enough, his death was powerful enough to overcome death, right? What was it we just sang just a few minutes ago? Death is crushed to death, right? I love that. That's kind of cool. It's like death, his death beat death. And we're going to see a much more victorious version of that next week when we get to talk about the resurrection, but, but at this moment, he has done all that he had to do to fulfill all that the Old Testament appointed to. He had, he had sacrificed everything. He had given himself up, his dignity, everything. And it's like all of creation knew that, right? We've talked before about how Scripture says that creation aches and groans as it, as it waits for Christ's return. It's like the earth physically knew that he had done this thing. So it's like shaking, and people are feeling the effects of like, this thing has just happened. And I think Matthew's trying to paint this picture of just how powerful this fulfillment was. A lot of the commentary stuff that I read gets into all the details. What could happen? What could have caused this earthquake? Well, I mean, they do sit on, you know, a place where two, two, plate, two earth plates, whatever, science. I don't care. What? Earth plates. I know. Hashtag earth plates. I don't care what the science is. What happened is Jesus died and the earth shook. People came back to life showing that he had defeated death. The curtain of the temple was torn because he had fulfilled everything. There was no more need for the temple. There was no more need for sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice had been made and it had been made willingly by God because he wanted to be able to make us his family. He did it because he loves us and because he wanted to bring glory to his Father, to reveal his Father as merciful and gracious and able to save. 
you know, usually when we get to, you know, Good Friday or whatever, we'll, we'll read this story and we'll be like, hey, we read this story again. Now let's sing some songs. And it's like, yeah, we know the story. We know the story. But does that resonate with us? Do we hear about what it is that he put himself through? And I say that again. He put himself through because he wanted us to be his children. Does that sit with you? Do you feel that? What does that do inside of you? What does, how, does that, how does that make your heart feel? Because, because if it doesn't give you this sense of just amazement, awe, wonder at, oh my goodness, he loves me that much that he would go through all of these things. He, he would bear all of this torture, all of this humiliation. And at every step along the way, all of these people who had been following him, he's feeling this, I guess, sense of betrayal because now they're turning their back on him and they're mocking him just like everybody else. But man, he's doing all of this because he wanted to. He didn't have to do it. He could have stopped. He was in charge. He's God. And yet he says, I'm going to put myself through all of this so that I can make possible salvation. I can fix this relationship that has been broken ever since the fall. And I want us even if we're already saved, even if you're like, I'm already saved, I know this, I believe it. I want us to feel that. I want us to get excited about that. I want us to understand what it was that he did, and I want us to, to love him passionately knowing that he did that for us. Right? Not out of a sense of duty, just out of a sense of, man, I love him because he did this thing for me. It's not like you're obligated because, oh, he did this favor for me, I owe him a favor. No, it's not that. It's He did this thing if somebody, if somebody saved your life, if somebody pulled you off of the railroad tracks before the train got there, if somebody grabbed the back of your collar before you walked off the cliff, you would be really grateful and you would be really excited that that person was there. And you would probably really like that person a lot. We could actually act like we really like God a lot. Like we really love him because he did a really amazing thing for us that he didn't have to do, but he wanted to do because it was the only way that he could save us because he wanted us to be saved, because he wanted us to be his people. Let's pray. God, I just pray that you would make that real to us. That we really would feel that victory that we sing about, right? That, 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 that cross that was meant to kill was my victory. We sing that song. These things that you put yourself through, this humiliation, this agony, this defeat, this torture, all of this. You put yourself through willingly. And for us, this is the best news. This is, this is the best thing that could happen. This evil thing that took place is a good thing because it was your way of bringing us back to you. And God, I just pray that we would see your, your sovereignty in working all of this out, that you were in control, you were in charge of all of this, and God, that we would just revel in that knowledge. That we would be amazed at what it is that you've done, and that we would, we would worship you passionately because you have done this thing for us. And God, for the rest of us in here who maybe that's not real. That doesn't really sit with us yet. We don't really understand it, God, that you would 
that you would open our eyes to see what it is that really happened and why it is that you did that. And you would give us a heart that, that loves you and desires to chase after you. God, as you died, Jesus, as you died, you defeated death. What once was just a valley of dry bones can now be raised to life, can now be given air to breathe. God, we were dead and you were making us alive. And God, I pray that you would make us all so full of life and so full of passion and so full of love for you because of what it is that you have done for us. God, I just pray that maybe we're just kind of looking at this, this, these events from a distance and we're just kind of like, oh yeah, that's a thing that happened and that's awful. But we don't really feel any connection or responsibility within that. God, I just pray that you would, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, cause us to realize that that you were on that cross because we are sinful, because we are we're broken. And God, I pray that you would reveal our brokenness to us and our need for this so that as we repent of the sin that's in our lives and are brought back to you again, we just stand amazed at what it is that you've done. God, thank you for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.